Good evening. Chile has a new president, a former leftist student leader. In Haiti, missionaries make a daring escape from kidnappers. Joe Manchin royals the Democrats. And are New York City schools really safe with COVID coming down the tubes and the Omicron variant? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, December 20th, 2021. Former student leader Gabriel Boric promises to remake Chile after the millennial politician scored a historic victory in the country's presidential runoff election. He said in Santiago yesterday, we are a generation that emerged in public life demanding our rights be respected as rights and not treated like consumer goods or a business. He continued, we know that we know there uh, there continues to be justice for the rich and justice for the poor. And we no longer will permit that the poor keep paying the price of Chile's inequality. Boric spent months traversing Chile, vowing to bring a youth led inclusive government to attack nagging poverty and equality. The bold promise paid off with 50 uh, pardon me, with 56 percent of the votes. Boric yesterday handily defeated his opponent, far right lawmaker Jose Antonio Cast, and at age 35 was elected Chile's youngest modern president. And a band of kidnapped missionaries in Haiti, including a 10 month old baby, made a daring escape from captivity. They walked 10 miles through the night by moonlight, eluding their kidnappers and walking for miles over difficult terrain. Officials with the Christian Aid Ministries, the Ohio-based agency that the captive missionaries work for, said the group of 12 navigated by stars to reach safety after a two-month kidnapping ordeal. Weston Showaller is minister with Christian Aid Ministries. After discussing their plans, the group felt they should escape on the night of Wednesday, December 15. They made plans as they could, but ultimately placed their situation in God's hands, depending on Him for protection and guidance. During the night, as God directed, they prepared. They put on their shoes. They packed water in their clothes. And they prepared for the journey. They stacked their mattresses in a corner as I understand it, and prepared to leave. When they sensed the timing was right, they found a way to open the door that was closed and blocked, filed silently to the path that they have chosen to follow, and quickly left the place that they were held, despite the fact that numerous guards were close by. In the distance, they could see a mountain feature that they had recognized and they had identified in the previous days. They identified this landmark before, and they knew that they, this is the direction that they needed to go. They also followed the sure guidance of the stars as they journeyed through the night, traveling toward safety. This group included a married couple, a 10-month-old baby, a 3-year-old child, a 14-year-old girl, a 15-year-old boy, four single men, and two single women. With God's help, protection, and leading, they quickly made their way through the night. They walked for possibly as much as 10 miles. It's a little bit hard to discern exactly how far the distance was, but for many miles. Traveling through woods and thickets, working through thorns and briars. One of the hostages said, and I quote, Two hours were through fierce brambles, 
We were in gang territory the whole hike. The moon provided light for their path. During times they weren't sure where to go, they stopped. And what do you think they did? They prayed, God, show us where to go. And that is Christian Ministries, which, uh, and that is uh, Weston Showaller, the minister with Christian Aid Ministries. A total of 17 people from the missionary group, 12 adults and five minors, were abducted October 16th, shortly after visiting an orphanage. Their captors from the 400 Mozo gang initially demanded millions of dollars in ransom. Five other captives had earlier reached freedom. It's still unclear if any ransom was paid. The 12 were flown to Florida on a U.S. Coast Guard flight and later reunited with five hostages who were released earlier. At the site of an Amazon warehouse here in the United States, destroyed by a tornado that killed six workers, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri demanded answers from the company about whether there were whether uh, there were no safety plans for such an emergency. Because you got to give us the info. You got to tell these families why their loved ones weren't worth you taking the time to do what you should have done to be a business. You have to explain to these family members and loved ones why you were too busy making profits. So busy making profits that you didn't have time for the people. So it's the people who cause you to make the profits and you cared for them not. And so we offer our condolences from and we also say that us speaking out about this and not letting this go will save another life, even though that should not be our work. Let me be clear. It's not our work to, to do that. And as Cory Bush, representative of Missouri, a group of progressive Democratic lawmakers led by Senator Elizabeth Warren and representatives Bush and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is demanding am answers from Amazon. The letter sent today to Amazon CEO Andy Jassy and founder Jeff Bezos says the events that happened on December 10th at the Edwardsville facility fit a larger pattern. Amazon puts worker safety at risk in everyday situations and emergencies. Another letter was sent by a bipartisan group of senators, including Marco Rubio and Sherrod Brown. He's a Democrat of Ohio. It says Amazon's size and scope necessitate particular scrutiny by federal regulators when widespread incredible allegations of labor and employment law violations surface. The tornado was part of a complex of extreme weather centered in western Kentucky on December 10th, leaving at least 58 dead over more than 150 miles. The path of destruction included Amazon's fulfillment center in Edwardsville, which was entirely destroyed by the strike. In the aftermath of the building collapse, reports emerged that workers at the warehouse didn't receive proper safety training and an overall lack of preparedness by Amazon left workers in harm's way, despite weather warnings that tornadoes were likely that day. And in sort of... Um, National slash international news, the fate of billions of dollars held by the United States and destined for Afghanistan's Taliban government is becoming a political football. The World Bank is finalizing a proposal to deliver up to $500 million from a frozen Afghanistan aid fund to humanitarian agencies. Sources say Afghanistan's 39 million people face a cratering economy, a winter of food shortages and growing poverty three months after the Taliban seized power as the last United States troops withdrew from 20 years of war. That's controversial in the United States where groups are suing the Taliban and other organizations for billions for damages caused by the 9-11 attacks and other attacks by the Taliban and other groups. Uh, 
the United States has been trying to bypass the Taliban with its own aid money. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. There are a number of reasons uh, why the Afghan reserves remain inaccessible, including first and most immediate, the status of the funds is the subject of ongoing litigation brought by certain victims of 9-11 and other terrorist attacks who hold judgments against the Taliban. And these legal proceedings obviously cannot be disregarded. The second reason is we continue to face difficult fundamental questions about how it might be, we might be able to make reserve funds available to directly benefit the people of Afghanistan while ensuring that the funds do not benefit the Taliban. And finally, the Taliban remains sanctioned by the United States as a specially designated global terrorist group. That certainly has not changed, but this is, of course, complicated by the ongoing litigation over those funds. It seems like politics is complicating relief. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says Sunday he cannot back his party's signature $2 trillion social and environment bill, dealing a potential fatal blow to President Joe Biden's leading domestic initiative heading into an election year when Democrats' narrow hold on Congress was already in peril. Manchin told Fox News Sunday that after five and a half months of negotiations among Democrats in which he was the party's chief obstacle to passage, he just can't agree. If I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. The bill would provide hundreds of billions of dollars to help millions of families with children, extending a more generous child tax credit, creating free preschool and bolstering child care aid. There's more than $500 billion for tax breaks and spending aimed at curbing carbon emissions, which experts consider the largest federal expenditure ever to combat climate change. Other provisions would limit prescription drug price increases, create hearing benefits for Medicare recipients and bolster aid for the elderly, housing and job training. Nearly all of it would be paid for with higher taxes on the wealthy and large corporations. It's rare for a member of the president's own party to administer a fatal blow to their paramount legislative objective, similar to Senator John McCain's famous thumbs down on a 2017 measure to repeal Obamacare. Meanwhile, Missouri's Representative Cory Bush told MSNBC the White House shouldn't have been surprised by Manchin's no. The progressives in the House had been warning Joe Biden all along that Manchin would bail. We have been, and let me be clear, there are six of us who had been saying this all along. Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Presley, Representative Tlaib, Representative Bowman, Representative Omar, and myself, we have been saying this for weeks that this would happen. And we took the hits. We were told that we were anti our caucus, we were anti-democracy, we were anti this and that, when actually what we were and what we still are is pro the people because the people have to be per- be first. The people have to win. And so when I think about this no, that this was a no all along. And so what we had was a bit of leverage, which was having the coupling of the two bills, the BIF, the um, uh, infrastructure package, as well as the Build Back Better Act. The, having those coupled together was the only leverage we had. And what did the caucus do? We tossed it, you know, and for me, it's really, uh, it's sad. It's sad for us to say, let's look good instead of being good. Let's look strong instead of being strong. Let's look like we have a win instead of actually having a win. And that's uh, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri last night on MSNBC. But White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the White House is limited by its thin majority in the Senate. 
We only have 50 votes in the Senate. That has not changed. You need all of those members to support legislation moving forward. And I know one of the arguments out there is that we should have waited on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Look, the president has said from the beginning and continues to believe today and is committed to today to getting both done. Obviously, the infrastructure bill is now law to getting Build Back Better done. But if the question is whether we should have delayed and not moved forward with replacing lead pipes for millions of people and communities across the country, we disagree with that. Or if you're, the argument is that we should have waited and delayed replacing broadband, we disagree with that. And if you believe that we should have delayed in putting many, many union workers to work, creating many, many good paying union jobs, we disagree with that. We're going to get both done. Saki went on to express that the president doesn't know why Panchin pulled out so publicly. I can speak for Senator Manchin on what has upset him. I'll let him speak to that himself with more specifics if he if he chooses to, uh, and he may or may not choose to, and that's his prerogative. All I can convey is that we continue to focus on how we're going to get this done. The door remains open. The president considers him a longtime friend, someone he's worked with on a range of initiatives and objectives over the course of the last several years that they've known each other, and, and that's really where we're coming at this from. And she has a president's confident he can work out the differences with the West Virginia senator. And the president continues to believe that they share a range of values. They share commitment to helping working people, to helping lower costs for the American people. As my statement very clearly outlined, because there were private conversations and private discussions and commitments made. So that's why we were surprised. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki explaining that the president was surprised by a member of his own party sabotaging and shooting down his signature legislation. Meanwhile, the COVID surge is in the news. Moderna said yes, said uh, today that a booster dose of its COVID-19 vaccine should offer protection against the rapidly spreading Omicron variant. Moderna said lab tests showed the half-dose booster shot increased by 37 times the level of so-called neutralizing antibodies able to fight Omicron. And a full-dose booster was even stronger, triggering an 83-fold jump in antibody levels, although with an increase in the usual side effects, the company said. While half-dose shots are being used for most Moderna boosters, a full-dose third shot has been recommended for people with weakened immune systems. But the director of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adnam, says that uh, all this could be for naught. As long as the world remains unvaccinated, the virus will continue to plague humanity. There's a vast gap in rates of vaccination between countries. 41 countries have still not been able to vaccinate 10 percent of their populations, and 98 countries have not reached 40 percent. We also see significant inequities between population groups in the same country. If we end inequity, we end the pandemic. And that's Dr. Tedros Adnan. In the United States, COVID has been hitting hard. Los Angeles called off its New Year's celebration today. In Boston, the city's new Democratic mayor announced to howls of protests and jeers that anyone entering a restaurant, bar or other indoor business will need to show proof of vaccination starting next month. In New York City, where a spike in infections is already scuttling Broadway shows and causing long lines at testing centers, Mayor Bill de Blasio is expected to decide this week whether the city's famous New Year's Eve bash in Times Square will come back full strength, as he promised in November. Schools are the major issue, though, in New York and other localities that say uh, they won't close them in per- they won't close in person instruction this time as they did a year ago. CDC head Dr. Rochelle Walensky says new evidence based programs are aimed to keep schools safe. 
has collaborated with school districts across the country to evaluate a new strategy known as Test to Stay. Today, we're releasing CDC science on Test to Stay that allows unvaccinated children to stay in school even if they've been exposed to the virus so that they don't have to miss school while they're quarantining at home. In the test to stay protocol, there's increased testing of close contacts after a COVID-19 exposure. And that testing needs to be at least twice during the seven day period after exposure. If exposed children meet a certain criteria and continue to test negative, they can stay in school instead of quarantining at home. Test to stay is an encouraging public health practice to keep our children in school. And that is Dr. Walensky of the CDC. White House Press Secretary Chen Psaki echoed that schools will stay open. We continue to believe that local school districts will need to make the decisions that they feel are appropriate for their communities. Uh, our objective and the president's objective is to keep schools open. And 99% of them are open, have been open, and we believe we have the tools to do that. One of the steps we've talked about a little bit is test to stay, uh, which is a proposal that's been out there by a number of health officials, where uh, if your kid is in school now, and you probably know this and I know this, and they have a close contact, typically they have to quarantine or be out of school, and there have been... Uh, health experts who have recommended that there can be a contact tracing and um, and testing regimen that can allow kids to stay in school. And that is very intriguing to the president. And that is what our focus is on. And that's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. In New York City, Health Commissioner Dr. David Chokshi says city schools will also stay open and he maintains they will be safe. 600,000 New York City children uh, are uh, vaccinated with at least one dose already. Uh, but we're going to make even more concerted efforts, particularly for 5 to 11-year-olds. So the bottom line is that our schools are some of the safest places for our students as well as our staff to be. It's because of those strict layered protocols that we have, and we're going to continue to do what we need to to meet the moment with Omicron. But a coalition of caucuses within the United Federation of Teachers released a statement, an action plan yesterday that calls on the city, the Department of Education and the United Federation of Teachers leadership for a rapid, robust response to the exploding COVID crisis, what they call the exploding COVID crisis in our public schools. The group is calling for immediate action, a summary and uh, and th- we're going to go on with an interview. We did an interview with Lydia Harlika. I'm going to try and pronounce her name correctly. Haurilika, H-O-W-R-I-L-K-A, please forgive me. And she is um, a member of this group and says that uh, she doesn't think that schools are going to be safe and that teachers and students are highly concerned. Testing is inadequate. We have testing every other week at best. Some schools, they don't even see testing every month. Um, not everybody gets tested. It is So to get tested, you have to submit a permission slip if you are a student. A lot of students who did not hand in permission slips, and thus they are not being tested. So we have a lot of cases of COVID that are slipping, uh, that are slipping under the radar. We have teachers calling out sick because the new variant is very contagious. A lot of folks are coming down sick. Um, in my school, we have 13 people out for COVID, and nobody seems to know what is the magic number to shut down your school. So right now, we just have classes quarantined, but the school is still open. Parents, students, educators, and administrators, principals are trying to get information about closure and who should quarantine. The Situation Room is really falling short on this. 
Additionally, our union leadership is silent. They sent us an email on Friday talking about what they're going to do with Eric Adams, but there's no action plan as to how they're going to keep us and our children safe this week. This week in New York is going to be like a viral blizzard. People are going to be dropping like flies. A lot of my friends I've been talking to, a lot of them are homesick from COVID. They did everything right. They, they quarantined, they masked properly. The only issue is that they're working in schools that don't have good ventilation systems. Schools are not adequately testing and tracing. They have large numbers of kids who are unvaccinated and are spreading this like wildfire. Kids are bringing in stuff from the community into the schools and are saying people sick. What should be done in your opinion? We need to close down schools for this week and the first week after New Year's. We know people are going to be traveling. We know we can't contain what is going to be happening in the schools, but we need to seriously take preventive measures now. Schools should be closed. We should go for remote instruction for a very short period of time. Additionally, we need our union leadership out there demanding greater accountability. How are the uh, high school students taking it? Hard. Masking is really hard. Not everyone is able to universally mask for eight hours a day. It's really hard for the kids. I have 34 kids in my classroom, and I am feared every day that one of my kids is going to get sick or that I'll get sick. Anything like that? The DOE has failed to provide us with type of purifiers, and they're loud, they're noisy, they're overpriced. They don't even do the job well. I interviewed some teachers and some students a few months back. The thing they said that was so controversial was that the uh, remote learning was a joke. I personally prefer teaching face-to-face. Like this, that's my bread and butter. A lot of us learn how to do the best we can. The issues that we're dealing with are manyfold. A lot of our kids don't have internet at home. They don't have stable communities. A lot of our kids are homeless. If the city did better to provide our kids a service, including free Wi-Fi, including access to devices, giving kids who really need to be in school access to school buildings and having kids who have materials they need to learn remotely, they can learn remotely. I think that's one way we can do to make remote learning more legit and also at the same time give kids who need the FaceTime with, with the teacher FaceTime safely. And that's Lydia Harilka. She's a member of United for Change, a group within the United Federation of Teachers that's challenging the leadership of the UFT. And finally, Mayor de Blasio had the city's COVID indicators today. A great number today, 12,974,734 doses to date uh, administered, and we expect a lot more. Again, people getting out there, getting those boosters, uh, mandates coming into effect. That number we want to keep pushing up, pushing up. But here are the challenges. Uh, number two, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19. Today's report, 193 patients. Confirmed positivity, 35.05%. Hospitalization rate per 100,000 New Yorkers is now 1.80. New reported cases on a seven-day average. This increase we've talked about very sudden. We expect that to continue for a period of weeks. Today's report, 6,989 cases. And that's Mayor de Blasio uh, on the city's latest COVID indicators. One more story. Uh, notice I just received tomorrow, December 21st at 1 p.m., folks uh, who are involved in defending the park at East uh, at the East River, East River Park, which has been being demolished as we speak, are asking people to meet at a gate south of Houston Street, uh, the Houston Street entrance to the park in East River Park, to parade together to the amphitheater, to bring flowers, to offer, bring candles to light once the sun sets. They said for those who can't meet at one at Houston, they're going to be by the amphitheater at 2 p.m. 
And that's some of the news for Monday, December 20th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>